So um, I think what we should do is it looks like people are going to continue to come in from the back. So I'm going to put this bunch of systems in the back. Yes. And assign someone to give them out. <laughs> OK. So my name is David Bick. I'm a geneticist in Milwaukee. And I really want to thank you all for coming out early in the morning. And I really want to thank um, the Institute for inviting me to give a little chat about whole genome sequencing which um, we've actually introduced into clinical practice. And as I think you're going to see from my talk, we're not, we're not alone in uh, starting up uh, sequencing in clinical practice. So um, I want to have some disclosures that um, we're using whole genome sequencing in the clinic. We're doing it on a fee-for-service basis. Uh, the testing is performed in a CLIA CAP-certified laboratory and that the FDA has determined that approval, FDA approval for what we're doing is not required. Um, we have audience participation systems. I want to let you know that all the information we collect today is anonymous um, and that you are not required to participate. So I want to um, start with uh, what I think was a very uh, prescient statement. Uh, we believe that the genome, particularly when viewed in its environmental context, represents a tremendous opportunity to improve the lot of humanity, especially using genomic information to individualize health care. And uh, I could not agree more with Hunt. Um, to that end, I believe that whole genome sequencing has actually entered uh, clinical practice. And here are a few examples of it entering clinical practice. The group at Oxford has started using a whole genome sequencing Diagnostically, we've, we started a couple of years ago, uh, Baylor College of Medicine. You can just order up an exome on your patient uh, whenever you want. Um, Ambry has started. Uh, I know Harvard has definitely enrolled their first patient in their clinical program. And again, these are pure clinical programs. These are not research programs. For those of you, how many people know about 23andMe? How many people have heard of it? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Um, it turns out that if you've already been part of 23andMe for $999, they will do your exome now. It's interesting. So I want to particularly um, highlight David Goldstein and his group's work. Um, I think that this paper that they provided on clinical application of exome was brilliant. I mean, they really, really did a super job. And uh, there's some quotes which... I would say are worth repeating. I am absolutely convinced that in the setting of undiagnosed illness in children, it is incumbent on the healthcare system to provide this kind of sequencing. It really is time to do this and not just do it, but do it well. And so I could not agree with David more. So to that end, does everybody have an audience participation system? Who doesn't have one? Everyone has one? you may go ahead and respond. Obviously, they're numbered, so one would be yes and two would be no. <laughs> um, do you have an audience response system? You get, you get to answer the question. Joe, there's a chair up here. 
Yep, we have a chair for you. There you go. You're going to be giving the talk the rest of the. You're giving the rest of the talk. <laughs> okay, so I think everyone has um, given their vote, and there's the answer to that question. Interesting, huh? All right, some demographics. You might wonder why I have such a low number for age because I've given this talk at undergraduate campuses and sometimes people under How 18. How do they answer the first question? You. Oh, yeah, yeah. Remind me at the very end okay. and I'll tell you. This is a, the surveys that you're taking today I've given for the last year and at least year um, to a large number of audiences and so I'm happy to give a feeling for everyone's had a chance to uh, weigh in, okay? So let's see. Here's the demographics of the group. Some 15-year-olds. And a little bit more demographics. I'm sorry, I'm in your way. Everyone gets a chance to respond. Who want to respond? <laughs> okay, and now here's the demographics of this group. Okay, bunch of smart people, I can see that. So, I want to talk, uh, I want to start the talk by talking about a little boy named Nick. His name is actually Nick Volker. I can say that because he's been in the news. How many people here have heard of Nick Volker? Raise your hands high, I just want to see. So there are still some people that don't, may not know his no story. He's a little 15-month-old who presented at, or he presented at 15 months of age with poor weight gain and uh, perianal abscess. He then progressed to inflammation that involved his entire colon, and he developed fistulas to his skin. And he was, the diagnosis that he was carried with was severe Crohn's disease. And so people instituted bowel rest, which is typical, some immunosuppressants, tried some other medications. Uh, all of it was an utter failure. And over the course of three years, he had 142 anesthetics for various surgeries and treatments. At one point, he was in the hospital for more than a year continuously. So it's difficult to treat a condition if you don't know the cause. And that's an important theme in medicine, and that's an important theme in genetics. So the cause of Crohn's disease is unknown. It's a chronic inflammatory reaction of the intestinal mucosa directed against uh, the, uh, the bugs in the mucosa. And it occurs apparently in genetically susceptible individuals. Uh, there's been a lot of genetic studies. There are perhaps 50 susceptibility genes. And the way we sort of think about it in medicine is we say the immune system has sort of overreacted to the gut flora. We don't really understand it, so we wave our hands a lot. His, um, and then we use uh, immunosuppressants. Nick's severity really challenged us and challenged everybody because he was so much more severe than typical patients with Crohn's and had responded so poorly, the question was asked, maybe he doesn't have Crohn's. 
And so a group of physicians and scientists said, all right, we're going to try sequencing his whole genome in the hope of finding a disorder which is treatable, which does sound a bit like Don Quixote, but in this particular case, uh, a new technology called next-generation sequencing had come into its own. And how many people here know about next-generation sequencing, whole genome sequencing? I don't have to talk a whole lot about it, except to say it allows you to obtain sequence data <coughs> from the entire human genome rapidly and with diminishing cost. And that's sort of the point I'm trying to illustrate by looking at how much data you get for how much co for cost. So we went and jumped into uh, Nick's uh, exome. Um, we found 16,000 variants that were SNPs, small dupes, and DELs. We mapped them to the current reference genome at the time. There were 7,100 non-synonymous changes. A non-synonymous change means you change the nucleotide change results in an amino acid change. We filtered on a database called dbSNP and said, all right, which of these changes are novel? Which of these haven't been seen in dbSNP? dbSNP is a database that lists single nucleotide changes throughout the genome. Some of those single nucleotide changes are common polymorphisms of no clinical consequence found in large percentage of the population. If they're novel, it makes us think that perhaps they, that means that they're probably not common in the population and that those might be good to filter on. We knew that Nick's parents were unaffected and so we decided to go for this sort of process in terms of genetics. You could argue maybe it was an, a new dominant, but this is what we chose at the time. And we then further filtered uh, to look to see which of these non-synonymous changes were predicted to damage protein function, things like SIFT and polyphen. And for the SIFT and polyphen experts in the audience, you'll say, well, there's a million reasons why those programs don't work and are dangerous, but we did that anyway. Uh, we looked at evolutionary conservation. We do believe in evolution, and um, that, uh, <laughs> did I say something wrong? <laughs> um, and we, so now we're down to 36 genes, which we filtered um, for frequency in the population. This brought us down to five genes, um, and we looked to see whether any of these could be biologically relevant. And quite honestly, for our group, and I think groups around the country, this is where the rubber meets the road and the difficulty arises in doing whole genome sequencing in the clinic is what is a plausible gene for a clinical disorder. One gene sort of stuck out like a sore thumb, which was X, XIAP. Uh, it's an X-linked disorder. Nick was a boy, so that was good. Um, and in order to do all of the above, we developed an information package uh, that we call Carpe Novo, and that took us months. So doing this, this one individual's analysis took us many, many months. The change resulted in a, uh, he had a tyrosine at this position instead of a cysteine, and this just gives you an idea of how well that amino acid is conserved down through, through various species. 
So here was where, again, the problem lay. So XAI, XIAP is known to cause a disorder called X-linked lymphoproliferative syndrome. How many people here have heard of that? There are obviously some physicians in the audience. <laughs> They're ringers. So this is a fatal or near fatal, um, this is a disorder that's associated with a fatal EBV infections. These patients get lymphadenopathy, hepatosplenomegaly, um, they have bone marrow failure. This doesn't exactly sound like Nick. These children have hypogammaglobulinemia. They eventually go on to develop lymphomas, um, and that's usually how they die. 70% um, die by age 10, and at the, at, the time, at the present time, the only treatment for this that seems to work is a bone marrow transplant. So the real problem in Nick's case was that his symptoms did not match the known disorder. And so this says more about how limited medicine is in its knowledge. Well, once people realized that this mutation was real, and not to go into much more of the story, but there was some more biology done to assure everyone that this really was the case, it was felt that a bone marrow transplant was indicated. And here's Nick today. He had his bone marrow transplant. All of his symptoms resolved. So needless to say, saving some child's life certainly um, gave us a strong um, incentive to try and turn this into regular clinical medicine. Now, um, uh, in 2010, in the summer, we said, all right, we're going to start uh, a whole genome sequencing program whose purpose is to take children where we don't know their diagnosis and find a diagnosis in the hope that we're going to find something treatable. And even if we don't find something treatable, at least we can end what we call the diagnostic odyssey. One thing that happens in pediatric genetics is that we see a child, we'll do some testing. The, if we don't find an answer, we'll have the family come back again. And they come back again and again. Some families will fly around the country and see geneticists all, all around the country, sometimes around the world. And so families can spend thousands and thousands of dollars tens of thousands of dollars worth of health care, and literally years of searching in vain for an answer. And so our hope is to create a program where we can shorten that diagnostic odyssey. And so we went after disorders that we thought were rare, likely monogenic, and we decided to use whole genome sequencing rather than whole exome. Here we're talking about um, maybe how many angels can stand on the head of a pin. But we elected to use whole genome sequencing instead of whole exome. And I can say that our program took many, many months to develop. And you'll, you, you'll be able to see why it was so complicated to organize in the process that we create. So here's my first um, political statement. When you go to the, the people who are in charge of Duke, and the medical school, and the university, and you say, we would like to start this program, I would urge you to start with the very top leadership of your institution. We got the person who would eventually be the, who was the CEO of the Children's Hospital, the individual who would eventually be the dean of the medical school in a room with all of the senior people in the PEDS department, 
and we explained what we would like to do. At that point, the CEO of the Children's Hospital signed on. The individual who would eventually be the dean of the medical school signed on. And then we had a program. Not without tons of work. So, so back to, to Nick's story. So you went from none of the substance matching to saying it was indicated to have a bone marrow. So I, I missed that. Yeah, so there was obviously some functional studies to indicate oh. that really he had XA. That, that, oh, I see. That there was, there's some, there's some more biology to prove that that mutation really, in fact, was biologically relevant. Yeah. So in our process, we uh, are currently w using this in the situation of children who are seen at Children's Hospital. Two attending physicians can nominate a case, and they provide a summary of the case uh, to a whole genome sequencing group to look at these applications. Um, our group includes the chair of the hospital's, the hospital's chief medical officer. He's the chair of the group. We have one of the, the, uh, the head of ethics at the children's hospital, the head of ethics for the medical college. No, they're not head of, they're not head, they're on the committee, the ethics committees. We have geneticists, genetic counselors, bioinformatics folks, um, people with more expertise in genomics. We also uh, have physicians with expertise who are not involved in the case, uh, involved in this review group. So one of the, <clears throat> so our, our current criteria are we think that reasonable clinical testing that uh, applies to that patient's phenotype should have been done, that we do our best to um, try to decide that it's monogenic. You, there's lots of arguments about whether that can be even done. Um, we try and ask whether we're going to be able to change medical decision-making, such as transplant, surgery, medication, and in some instances, futility of care. If you have something that's inevitably fatal, um, you can then give the parents some choices around how they want to proceed with the rest of that child's life. Um, also, our ability to, in to interpret sequence has to be considered if the child is already dead and they were just trying to find out, you know, is that really going to be that helpful because we might need to do some biology, um, a distinct and unique phenotype, and then cost-benefit considerations. So a case brought to the group can be recommended for sequencing, park for further consideration. In other words, uh, we, had some, we had some resource limitations. We couldn't just do any one that we felt like. We, um, and so we had to try and prioritize. Now, this was a couple of years ago, and we think we're going to be changing this soon to allow any, any patient. Um, but I can talk about that at the end. Um, and then we, and then there'd be cases where we would return to the original referring physicians if we thought that there was more clinical information, testing that, additional testing that could be done that's part of standard of care. Um, and then there'd be cases that just weren't appropriate for whole genome sequencing. Uh, at the present time, we've gone through about 57 cases, 30 have been approved, 13 have completed sequencing, and are under analysis. So those are all pediatric cases? All pediatric cases. Um, we have a separate program for adults that we've just started in the last few months, which I'm happy to chat about. Could you briefly comment on what your criteria is? Criteria for adults. For, or for, for children. children. How do you decide that you, you know, or how do you cite 
So I think this has been our we've we've tried to be broad in the sense of can we change medical decision making for that child? Are we going to do a different therapy than we're currently doing, different drug than we're currently doing? Could we find ourselves in the futility of care situation where we where we think that there's a disorder <laughs> in this child which is lethal and there's and continuing to just do things for the child is doing things to the child without any real hope of uh, a long-term positive prognosis. So I, I really wish I could give you more detail than that. Um, but I think we've, we've focused on medical decision-making. And I think around the country, the whole notion of, um, of clinical, clinical utility, I'm trying to get the right word, clinical, clinical utility is the notion that you shouldn't do a test unless it's going to change management. Um, I take it that insurance doesn't bear any of the cost of the sequencing? Actually, we've had probably four or five cases where insurance has covered the cost. And that, bring, that will bring me to the end where I can talk a little bit about how we're um, evolving the program. Now, you mentioned you are doing, looking at monitoring diseases, right? Now, We're attempting to look at monogenic diseases. How do you know that a child has a monogenic disease no, is no. a problem. Uh, so my question was, if it's just, if you're restricting yourself to monogenic diseases, then why go to the whole genome? Why not just look at the exome? Uh, and is that because of undiscovered genes? So let's just talk about exomes and genomes for a moment. So what I, what the way I define an exome are all of the exons Everyone knows introns are the spaces between exons. Exons are the coding sequence, the portion of the gene which uh, encodes the amino acids that give rise to the proteins. So if you do an exome, you're going to capture all of the coding sequence, all, that, all the sequence that gives rise to proteins, plus most places will also give you the intron-exon boundaries. So if there are splice mutants, you can detect those. One thing that you don't get from exome is there's now been a number of papers recently indicating that there are intronic variants which would not be identified through most exon capture. And we know that exon capture, so when you want to do an exome, what you do is you first take the patient's DNA and you use a capture array. And that capture array only holds on to the exons, the portion of the DNA that contains the coding region, and the rest of the DNA is, if you will, thrown away. And so when you go and use these capture chips to hold on to just the exons, those capture chips are not perfect. And so you actually don't get all of the exons by exome capture. What's particularly difficult are GC-rich regions. These capture chips are not really good for that. Though you could argue that Illumina's technology, which is what we're using, and others of the technologies are not great at GC-rich contents and poly-A tracts. And, but if you want to have the highest probability of capturing the most, that's where I think gene, whole genome is valuable. and. The, the rate at which the cost of doing 
sequencing is dropping. It is dropping so quickly that by the time a lot of groups get exon capture working, we're going to discard exon capture. So that's another reason why we went to whole genome right away. Did I answer your question? Yes. Okay. So how much sequencing depth are you going to? What did you sequencing depth? So for depth for whole genome, I want to say we're in the 40 to 50x um, coverage. But if at the end, remind me to talk about something called GAPMINE, where we analyze every nucleotide to determine not what is the overall coverage, but do we, which exons fail to get covered when we sequence. So remind me to talk about GAPMINE. So here, I believe, is the heart of the issue of sequencing a child or sequencing an adult. What do you say to the parents and what do you say to the adult that you're about to sequence? So in our program, we spend quite a good deal of time, which is why our numbers are so low, exploring expectations. We have to explain that we're doing something which has a reasonable chance of failure. Just because you sequence a child's genome doesn't mean you're going to find the answer. And there's innumerable reasons why that is so. We talk about why we should even proceed with whole genome sequencing. We talk to parents about how each the mother and the father each feel about having the child sequenced and to see if we can get them to feel the same way one way or the other about doing sequencing. We want them to understand the risks, which is we're not going to get an answer. Um, some of the benefits, we might find an answer. Some of the limitations and some of the social and family implications of if we found what are called off-target results or incidental findings. And what I mean by an incidental finding is you have a child like Nick and you found XIAP, but while you were looking, you also found that he has the gene for hereditary breast cancer, right? So that would be, that would be an incidental finding. That would be something that has nothing to do with his disease, but which has enormous implications for potentially his health in the future, because there are males who develop breast cancer who have BRCA gene, gene mutations, and to his family. We also talk about the, some of the ethical and legal issues. Is it appropriate for parents to even decide about their children? And we're going to talk about that some more. And some of the legal issues. So how many people here have heard of the Jinnah legislation? Holy cow, you're a pretty informed group. <laughs> I'm, very, I'm very impressed. So Jinnah was a law that was passed in 2008 that uh, said that an insurance company and your employer cannot discriminate against you if you have a gene mutation that means that in the future you might get a genetic condition. However, your life insurance company and your um, disability insurance company can use that information to um, discriminate against you. We encourage parents to think this through before they sign up. But you could argue that even if we found BRCA in Nick, as long as the parents didn't themselves get tested, they would still be eligible 
for insurance because you don't know which one inherited it. No. Yes. What do you do about if the families want access to the data? That's a very good question, and we're going to chat about that. You're you're way ahead of me. No, 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 no. You're. This is a smart group. <laughs> I've stumbled into a smart group. Okay. So, please. This is pure clinical medicine. There, we specifically did this because we don't have a research question. We're attempting to help patients. So um, a primary result. So if we found a change that was likely to be pathogenic, we would report that. If we found a result um, that was an incidental finding, likely to result in an unrelated phenotype, that's something that we call the secondary result, an incidental finding. We're going to talk about that right now. <laughs> this is the smartest group. I, this is a great group. This is amazing. Okay. So what exactly is an incidental finding? Okay. So it's a sequence finding where um, you found something you weren't expecting. We break them into medically actionable and medically not actionable. So here's an easy place where you can start shooting holes in us, what's medically actionable, what's not medically actionable. And I'm going to try and give some examples. And I think broadly we'll be able to agree on some of these terms. So a variant where uh, that knowledge is going to affect medical decision making, such as initiation of a treatment, not medically actionable, a variant that increases the individual's risk for a disease. Um, but there's really no treatment and there's nothing that you can really do to change medical decision making. Um, we break it into childhood, and so here's an example of what I would vote as a childhood uh, onset medically actionable disorder. How many people have here have heard of biotinidase deficiency? Um, seeing the physicians in the audience again. Um, so this is a disorder. It's a recessive disorder. It's an inability to recycle the vitamin biotin. Those children who have this recessive disorder they develop seizures, hypotonia, ataxia, developmental delay. This is not a good disease. However, if I give them biotin, um, then they will never have any of those symptoms their entire lives and will be entirely normal. I, I take care of two little boys who have a biotinidase deficiency that were picked up in state newborn screen. They've been getting their biotin ever since birth, and they're the happiest, cutest little boys in the world. They have never had any of these problems ever. So I would I vote that that's a childhood onset treatable disorder. I also take care of children who have Tay-Sachs disease, who have died. Uh, it's a it's an abnormality of uh, gangliocide uh, metabolism. It's a progressive neurologic disorder starting at six months of age, and these children with the typical form of Tay-Sachs are dead at age four. Uh, there are some adult onset forms. We're not going to talk about that. But I would vote that for the typical mutations in Tay-Sachs, this is a medically not actionable disorder in childhood. So let's talk about adults. So BRCA1 is a pretty famous gene. Uh, it mutations cause an autosomal dominant breast, cancer, breast and ovarian cancer. Um, it's common 
the cancers that develop are frequent before age 50. You have 57% chance by 70 for breast, 40% for ovary. There is very clear data that mastectomy and ophorectomy reduce that individual's risk by 90%. That's not a very pleasant treatment, but it has been clearly shown by multiple studies that this is an effective approach. And so I view this as an adult onset treatable disorder. Familial Alzheimer's is a little bit more problematic. Um, there are a number of genes, uh, presenilins, AAP, um, where there are dominant pedigrees onset in the 40s or 50s, uh, memory failure, um, confusion, poor judgment, language disturbance, agitation, withdrawal, hallucinations, sort of like undergraduates. Um, uh, but it's an adult onset disorder, and it, and it is, at the present time, not treatable. So you make the distinction between Absolutely. Did, did everyone hear what he said? That there are socially actionable mutations. And so the question is whether, a, um, an, whether Alzheimer's is potentially a socially actionable disorder. Yep, you have uh, hit one of the main problems. Yes, please. The other thing is, I mean, Alzheimer's, for instance, is not this presently not treatable, but it could be in the near future that some treatment comes along. Absolutely correct. And if this person knew that they had and these are all of the things that were just mentioned just now are exactly part of the discussion that we have with the families and we include what you just said in our discussion yep you're a hundred percent right so sequencing a child can give information about the parents and that's sort of been implied in all the things we've said but I want to make it explicit that when you're talking to children talking to adults about their children, you need to talk about what adult things you might find. So we, when we speak to families, we say that we're going to give them the primary diagnosis. And we also say to them, look, we're going to, if we found a treatable childhood onset disorder, we're going to let you know that result. So this occurs before we draw blood on the child. Before we send off sequencing, we have these discussions. And so families who don't want to participate in what we're proposing, they just say no to sequencing. And that's totally their choice. We feel that these are two things that most families would probably want. If, if, a, if we accidentally came across biotinidase deficiency in a child, we've yet to come across families who would say, no, don't treat my child with biotin. Right? Okay. And then these are the optional disclosures that the families have. And am, is it pretty clear what the options? So, so on the adult actionable, is that a decision that you let the parents make, or do you yes. save it for the, even though the child would, it would have this as an adult? We give, this is the, at the present time, the way we handle this is that if the child is one or two or ten, um, we, this, these, are the, these are the choices that the parents have. Please. Does and how it relates to the phenotype. 
So this gets back to what we tell families in the beginning. In the beginning, we tell them we're going to find thousands and thousands of variants that we don't know how to interpret. And, we are n and since we don't know how to interpret them, we don't carry them through to the report. We don't know what they mean. And so if they don't have biological relevance that we can identify, if they're completely uninterpretable, we don't include that in the report. And we say, at this point, we don't have information to know what to do. One of the things we do do, which may be sort of the next obvious question is, well, do you ever see those families again? We see them every year. And we view this in the way genetics views um, clinical practice today. If you're a clinical, if you're a practicing clinical geneticist, the patient comes to see you. You do an exam, you get history, and then you do some lab tests to try and identify an etiology. If you fail to identify the cause, you say, you know, I think if you come back next year, we may have some additional testing because there may be some new diseases discovered and so forth. We view the genome as part of the process of seeing the patient back next year. We'll reevaluate that child's genome just like we're reevaluating the child when they're sitting in front of us in clinic. Oh, look, he's got more of a prominent forehead. Oh, look in the genome. They've now found um, a gene for prominent forehead. We can now put those together in the clinic. So. <laughs> I'm probably not going to get done at 10. Sorry. No, it's okay. This, this whole conversation about actionable is so interesting because, so there's actionable adulthood, and, and I think you're talking about disease risk genes. What do you do with things like pharmacogenomic variants, which very clearly if the person, let's say the person right. 20 years from now gets started on Plavix. At this, at this point, we've gone with disease genes. Would it make sense to include in our report pharmacogenetics genes? Absolutely. And then is there, is there a way for, let's say you have a teenager and then 10 years later they get started on Plavix, is there a way for their physician or primary care provider 10 years later to go back and access the genome to see if they had CYP2, C19? That is a super question. So. How long should you hold on to the person's genome? Shouldn't you have them come back every year for the rest of their life? What about all of that? So now we're going to move into the land of politics. I believe that whole genome sequencing technology is moving along so quickly that in two or three years, I'm not even going to trust the data from two or three years ago. How many people here know what a DNA microarray is? <laughs> How many people here know the DNA microarrays are used in clinical practice? Okay. So when you see a child with birth defects, you'll do a chromosome test. You look under the microscope to see if they're missing or extra pieces of chromosome to see if they have Down syndrome. The DNA microarray is like a zoom-in view of the chromosomes. We've now used microarrays for probably four or five, seven, ten years, I don't know. And for people who've been doing microarrays in clinical practice for a while, who have a lot of gray hair or are missing most of their hair, we know that the original microarrays that were first done using back clones, and my patients where I'd had a back clone array five years ago, I redo them with the more modern arrays, the SNP arrays. And have I found 
missed di diagnoses that were missed in the original arrays? Yes. The same is true about whole genome sequencing. So do you validate your SNPs? Say again? Do you validate the SNPs? So validate the SNPs. A patient, when we report a whole genome, we back up the result with Sanger because I would not trust whole genome sequencing any further than I can throw it. Um, so kind of the way that you have it broken down reminds me a little bit of Genevin's binning system that yes. you talked about. Mm -hmm. So my question with the um, whole genome sequencing, do you report it in your bins or do you give families the option of choosing individual diseases that they would want reported or not reported on? We've been doing it as a binning process. Um, Okay, political statement. <laughs> when you start doing this here, you need to be sensitive to the cultural context that you're doing whole genome sequencing. What will fly in Milwaukee will not fly in North Carolina and vice versa. So if you're sensitive to the way the community uses, the physician community uses genetics and the way the patients view genetics and their genetic health. If you design a program sensitive to those two things, you'll get it right. You can't just take what we're doing and apply it in North Carolina. That will be, a, I promise, a disaster. So you, because you guys live here. You guys understand the families. You understand their needs, their fears. You have to build, you have to bake that into your program. Okay, done with my political statement. I'm sorry, you're not getting up the slide. Um, I have we haven't even come to the fun part. Go ahead. <laughs> So how do we get into primary diagnosis? Well, some are pretty easy. For example, if a patient's a little girl who's going like this, right, and she's got loss of, you know, she's got decreasing head circumference, and you find a mutation in MECP2, and you say, oh, that looks like Rett syndrome. She looked like Rett syndrome, and she had a Rett syndrome mutation. That's pretty easy. We call that a pathogenic variant. If you had that same child, and you found a variant in CDKL5, right? And it was um, and it was a missense mutation, and it hadn't been seen before, but it's seen in, you know, one in a thousand chromosomes in the exome variant server. We might call that a variant of unknown of uncertain significance, because it hasn't been clearly shown in other patients to cause disease. A stop codon in MECP2, which has never been seen before, in the same little girl who's going like this, everyone's going to call that pathogenic. Even though it's never been seen before, we know that stop codons in MECP2 cause Rett syndrome. It's a no-brainer. So we're very conservative in the sense that unless there's prima facie evidence, such as a stop codon in a known gene that's known to cause a disease, or a known mutation a known SNP, a, a known missense mutation that's been previously published in a, you know, a G542X in a CFTR, 
and the patient has cystic, you know, they've got their cough and their guts out and they have pancreatic insufficiency, they have CF, we go, we know what that, we know, we know what that's causing. Does that sort of yeah. help a little bit? I think the big question is kind of the, um, the unknown, you know, variants of unknown significance. So which variants of uncertain, yeah, I apologize for using a little bit different word. I really like to use political statement. I, used, I like the concept of calling them variants of uncertain as opposed to unknown. Um, so we call them variants of uncertain significance. And we are left with some laboratory judgment about what we believe is biologically um, plausible. Are we going to get some of that right and some of that wrong? You bet. But that's currently what lab directors are doing around the country all the time with known genes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to tell you that we do spend a great deal of time around, this, around these issues. I want to say that just that categorical model of choice takes us a good deal of time. I believe that this process can be done more efficiently than we're doing it. And I believe that online resources can help teach families. I've even started to put up a couple of YouTube videos um, about whole genome sequencing to try and teach the public, but that's for another day. Your turn. I'm in your way. It's so it's so, it's so quiet, it's so quiet. No, no, the problem is the colors mess it up when you see that. I know I've got your attention because you're so quiet. Okay. That, that, I've been with audiences where there are people who've said no. So that's where I get back to that whole point about you have to be sensitive to the environment that you live in and work in. Your turn. Gets harder after this. <laughs> I'm just I'm I'm throwing you the oh. are still thinking. <laughs> okay. No, you're not required to respond. Um, oh, some people did want it. Um, okay. Interesting. I think you can see where we're headed. Remind me at the end to tell you what um, I gave a webinar to a few hundred pathologists around the country. Remind me to remind me to tell you about this question. Okay. Interesting. You knew this was coming, right? <laughs> 
I think, let, wait, maybe we'll, I want to be fair to everybody because. No, I click first. I click first and ask questions. <laughs> you guys are really enjoying this. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased. So here's the next obvious question. Who should decide? A parent? Um, what if you asked whether they would want the doctor What if you asked whether they would want their doctor That is an excellent question. And at the American College of Medical Genetics um, meeting just recently, we did a poll similar to this, and we included that information. There are some patients who wouldn't want to know, but would want their doctor to know. And I think that that is a fabulous question. I've not been asking that when I've been having these, but I really think you bring up a, a fabulous point. And that gets back to the cultural context of offering whole genome sequencing. There will be individuals, there will be societies and communities around the United States who believe that that's a reasonable approach. Yes. And what is part of their medical record? What's part of their medical record is the result. The raw genomic data is not part of the medical record because unless a variant has been confirmed by Sanger, you can't believe it. So all results, even incidental findings, are part of their medical record? Yes. Right. So you, you'll see in a moment that because of the discussion we have about incidental findings with the family, they have expressed their wishes about what should be done with incidental findings. And so we, um, we adhere to their wishes. Do you have a um, level that's going to get since we're done clicking now? No, no, you're not. Where you, where you, where you we're not. Communicate um, to the patients, you know, relative risk and what it means, and you have a line. Um, as all genes aren't 100% penetrant, do you say, well, if it's 5%, 10%, or I mean, how do you communicate something that's not black and white when you get to this level? Where is that right? Line? So I think the problem is that none of the genes that we ever talk about are well. There are many genes which, which are various gradations. And so we would need to present that information to the family. Even BRCA is not 100%, right? And, so, and not, nor is Alzheimer's. No, I do want to ask this question, and I know that you guys are going to jump on me. Um, not about this question, just I'm running out of time, and so I want to get through a few more things. So a parent um, who decides to find out about adult onset conditions in their children, right? Now that child's lost the right to know, to decide whether they want to know or not. Is that pretty clear, right? 
So if a parent finds out, maybe they'll say, well, you know, you're just going to develop Alzheimer's, so I'm not going to leave you my inheritance. Or, uh, <laughs> you know, or, or maybe, or, right, or maybe the child, <laughs> right, what are you going to do with it anyway? Or maybe the child wouldn't want to know that they're going to develop Alzheimer's disease. Who are we to tell parents uh, that they have this right? So now, you know, you got to think for yourselves. Your child is having their genome sequenced. Should you be excluded from knowing an adult incidental finding that is adult onset and not treatable? So should you be excluded as the parent from this information? Um, is that information known by somebody? Um, it, it doesn't, you know, I, no, no, you're asking a reasonable, you know, you're asking a reasonable question. If it's not, if the parents don't request it and it's an incidental finding, it does not go in the report and it is not confirmed and so it is not a result, right? Until you confirm it, it's not real because things in whole genome sequencing don't always confirm. Okay, so. Is this anyone under 18, so a 17 year old maybe getting Where you are the parent, they are the and they are a child, right, by whatever definition, by our standard definitions of what a child is in the United States, yep. You're the, you're the parent. Should you be excluded from knowing this information? You just can't know, not allowed. Is that okay with you? They're heel stick. Yeah. They're just the. Uh, that's that's a whole other area. They might be, but this is today. <laughs> so, today your child is having their genome sequenced. Should you be excluded from knowing this? You know, the doctor just says no. You can't know that. Okay, I think I think I've tortured you guys enough with the questions. So now, absolutely, positively typical of every single audience I've ever given this talk to. These are exactly the same numbers, whether I give it to undergraduates, to medical students, to people who aren't physicians, to pathologists. Every single group gives the exact same ratio. So what did our patients decide? I'm really going to run out of time. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so 13 wanted sequencing and one family just said, nope, thank you, but no thank you. Um, 12 um, wanted, uh, let's see. Low. We tell them low, very low. We tell them right up front, we think the chance that this is going to turn up an answer is low. 
Um, so, let's see. I wonder if I got this. So, uh, sure I can read my own table. I made this up and. Um, yeah, none, none. Yeah, they they wanted no additional information uh, beyond. Yeah, uh, and then these these people said they wanted wanted not actionable in childhood was most wanted actionable in adulthood most and then these are the people who said that um, they wanted not actionable like the, the Alzheimer's group yeah. right so that sort of mimics what everyone in the room sort of sort of said which was that for the most part people wanted actionable but if it was not actionable in adulthood then it drops off and so our families pretty much mimic this room which mimics the whole no, no, no. This is that, that they want these things. They so want this. Um, in our group here, I can't remember. Did, oh, was it reversed in this group? Okay. No, it was, it was like this in this group. Yeah, yeah. It, these numbers are so stable over so many parts of the country and so many groups, it's shocking. Yeah, we, yes, the, so as a, as a survey question, this is dangerous. You're taking the survey question problem, the methods. You're in the methods section of the paper. Well, I personally, <laughs> I personally happen to be more worried about the right of the kid not to know the adult onset information. But I'm wondering, do you have a sense of the idea that parents might be wanting that information for their own, what it means for themselves? Yeah, I would say that they, uh, well, actually, I don't know the answer to that. So that's, that's a hugely important research question, which is, okay, political statement. <laughs> I believe, I don't believe that whole genome sequencing will be accepted by society in the United States until we start asking these sort of questions in a research environment and engaging the public. We've taken the, so that's my political statement. We've taken the view that the parents have these choices because we feel uncomfortable telling the parents what to do. There is a significant, uh, there has been significant concern which has been memorialized both in the pediatrics, um, the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American College of Medical Genetics have memorialized a statement saying that you should not be giving children uh, adult onset results. But here's the situation is subtly different. This came out as part of the test. It wasn't that we were intentionally searching for these. You could say, well, that's just semantics, David. But it is true that that result came out of the test. It wasn't that we were setting out to find an adult condition in that child. We were setting out to find the child's diagnosis. We knew we were at risk for these incidental findings. We permitted the parents to weigh the risks and benefits of finding out those incidental findings. And so we, so the bottom line is we live in the we live in what I believe a legal framework where parents have a good deal of choice, good deal of 
authority over their parent over their children. You, you mentioned that So that's one of the things that we discuss before blood is drawn. So that's an excellent point. Before you draw blood from these patients, you must go through all of these sort of issues like uh, we could find non-paternity, blah, blah. I and mean, for all I know, the family that decided not to do this testing, the reason they did it was not because they were worried about the diagnosis. Maybe they were worried that they were going to find non-paternity. They just didn't want to tell us. But we gave them the opportunity to know what they wanted to know. Are you going to discuss the findings from these cases that you mentioned? So I'm going to talk a little bit more about cases, yes. And is there any way to preserve the findings in a different way so that the child, when they are adult, has the ability to unwind it if they choose to just? Right. So, so how should the results be kept? should the child have access to that information when they turn 21? So I do sequencing today, and now I need to hold on to the data for 20 years, right, until that child can make a decision. And by the way, I have to track the child all over the country and around the world to make sure that when they reach 21 that I contact them and ask them if they want this information, which their parents may never have told them even existed. And then, so, political statement. <laughs> I believe that whole genome sequencing quality is changing so rapidly that I, as a physician, will not trust results that are two or three years old in much the way I don't trust array results that are two or three years old. And therefore, I believe that I wouldn't even use, I wouldn't, I don't think it is medically uh, rational. I don't think it is medically correct to use whole genome sequencing data that's more than three or four years old because the new sequencers and the new data analysis are so, so far superior that you're providing your patient with an inferior product. How many people actually knew that chromosomes used to not have banding? Did people even know what chromosome banding, like those, the light and dark colored bands? Any people here even know that the original chromosome analysis was done without banding? All right, when I was in medical school, I used to work at a place that was producing unbanded chromosomes. It was crazy <laughs> for clinical practice. And the same thing is true about sequencing. Yeah. That, but that doesn't actually answer the question because there's a possibility that for whatever reason, maybe political, that we don't actually go down that road of whole genome sequencing. So then, okay, you don't believe it if it's two or three years later, but what if it never happens? What if you don't, what if you don't get that new so if a patient was one and had their sequencing done, and now 20 years later, I'm guessing that sequencing is going to be better in 20 years. If that patient has a medical question about themselves, they're going to be doing their genome at the time with modern technology. And so in a way, I'm sort of wiggling out of this. But in another way, <laughs> no, but in another way, seriously, Counting on old technology is very bad. It's just you're putting your patients at risk. So you, you said that you only report the uh, variance and mutations that you validate by saying a sequence. Mm -hmm. If in two years' time the, the field hasn't progressed to the point in which it's cheap enough or it is a more accurate platform, do you go back to that sequence 
Right. That's the whole point. That was my whole purpose in having a yearly follow-up. Just like we follow up patients who haven't had sequencing every year to try and look at their phenotype and find a new test, we would come back every year, look at their phenotype, and reanalyze the data that we have. So how do you screen what's relevant then? Because there might be some obscure finding in the journal that you know, may be buried. So it's the same problem that we already have with microarray. In the microarray lab, we're always screening. You know, I run the microarray lab, right? So when I, get a, when I get a deletion, I have to jump into the literature and see what's new, right? This is just array on steroids. That's the, that's their choice. So that's usually where the, the parents are having a whole genome sequence done on their child for information for themselves. But you would have to then assume that they're going to then want to go on and test themselves, which they may or may not want to do if they found BRCA. But I think the problem is, and you brought this up beautifully, medicine is going to change if a parent understood that they, we might find an Alzheimer's gene, and that if they got treated in the next five years, they could be, it could be managed. But if they get treated 10 years from now, because that's when they start to develop symptoms, it's all over. So again, it's, it's a really, it's a balancing act. And I, I don't think that, we certainly don't have the answer. This is an approach that we've taken. So. Yeah, we're not, we do not, we do not say to them, right, we don't say to them, here's the lab report, this is the result. If you come back to us, we're going to talk to you, but we're by no means promising to keep, right. And this just gives you an idea of what the parents sign, and this goes to the laboratory director. We try and make it clear, we try to make their choices as clear to the laboratory director as we can. This is not the way the current laboratories in the country run the, the show. A lot of the labs that are doing Exome, Baylor, and other companies will just say, we're going to look for what's the matter with the child. If there's any off-target results, we're not telling you, you're, forget it. You don't, you don't have that choice. Um, one way to try to reduce the chance, we don't want to find incidental findings, right? We, we don't want to find that. The parents don't want us to find that. So we try and come up with a gene list of what we think are a few thousand plausible genes or a few hundred plausible genes based on the patient's phenotype, looking in the literature using OMIM. And we go after these plausible genes first. If that yields an answer, great. If it fails to yield an answer, then we expand it to the rest of the genome. So this is one way of sort of reducing the chance of finding an incidental finding, which no one wants to find. Like the candidate genes, um, kind of baby stepping into like 
what current methodology labs do. It's like, you know, so, so rather than doing a filtering of the full data. There's nothing to stop a physician from ordering a panel today, right? But when you get, and that's why we have at the top of our process, you should do the practice of medicine, right? So I do it all the time. I'm a uh, patient I saw yesterday. Um, what was the panel I was going to get? I was going to get the kid sort of looked like Noonan. He looked like a rasopathy. So I ordered the rasopathy panel. I'm not going to do an exome on that kid. He looked like he had a rasopathy. So I'm not going to do this. So you want to do the practice of medicine as you, the physician, view the practice of medicine. This is a desperation move. This is like a Hail Mary. Um, at the present time, we're using uh, Illumina's um, CAPCLIA lab. They'll sequence it. They send us back the data. We have our own CAPCLIA certified uh, analysis pipeline, which we've validated and do the proficiency testing and blah, blah, blah. We're going to, and that's this Carpe Novo analysis tool that I was mentioning. And then probably in the next month or so, a couple of months, we're going to stop sending to Illumina and just do them in-house ourselves. Um, Carpe Novo is kind of a cool program. I don't have any ec political statement. I have no economic <laughs> connection. This is an in-house built product, um, and I don't, I don't get any money for telling you about it. Um, you basically put the genes into here. You set the filters that you want, um, and um, you get a result. In this case, this is a gene. Um, uh, so, so let me just talk about this. So this is just the analysis filter, and you can put in all the genes, or you can put in a group of genes. So here's another case, a four-year-old with infantile spasms, cortical blindness, hearing loss, uh, presented at a few months of age with extreme irritability and hypotonia and delay. At about five months, the child um, was admitted for a GI workup. They found a markedly abnormal EEG. The child had very poor development. This is a pretty recent case um, that was difficult to control. We developed a gene list. Um, and when we went through that gene list, we um, found this sort of interesting gene. Uh, and it was a HET. Um, and it was uh, polyphen, probably damaging. And it's a gene that's connected with um, pyridoxine-dependent uh, epilepsy. So that's a pretty interesting gene. What's less interesting about it is that it was only, we only found a heterozygous, so the child just might be a carrier. Um, and this brings us to your point, which is how would you, and then here's a text of what we wrote about this particular variant. I'll let everyone read it instead of me reading it. I, no, I, I, no, I do think that's a good point. We try, um, we have a summary table in the beginning, and it has the variant, and at the end of it, it says pathogenic, benign, whatever. It, it, it says variant of un, uncertain significance. So, so you can look at the top of the table and say, all right, this is a variant that's really cool, and these are uncertain significance. So this gets back to your very important point. Um, you. There's a pretty good screening test um, for
for pyridoxine-dependent seizures. This is pretty effective. So we're going to send that on this child because there may have been some trivial sequencing reason for missing the other variant. Um, I'm not super hopeful because this child had been thought to have a mitochondrial disorder, was given pyridoxine um, as part of a mitochondrial cocktail. I don't know if, if you guys do this. When you have these patients with mitochondrial disorders, give them coenzyme Q and B-complex vitamin, and, and some of those actually um, will be helpful in certain of the mitochondrial disorders. But this child didn't have an improvement on pyridoxine, so I'm not super hopeful about that case. Um, some obvious things, uh, cancer is a genetic problem. Um, so cells that accumulate mutations that control cell growth, proliferation, apoptosis, these are the changes in a cell that sort of turn the cell into a cancer cell, if you will. Um, we currently classify treatment, classify and treat based on microscopy, protein markers, but I think genomics has a role in um, cancer treatment. So here was a case that I pulled out of a journal. Uh, they, they sequenced the normal cells from this patient and the cancer cell. It was a 39-year-old with AML. Uh, they used microscopy, chromosome analysis. They didn't get a very specific answer. And since it was AML, they said, well, uh, we have to give this woman a bone marrow transplant. But the problem was they couldn't decide whether it was uh, acute promyelocytic uh, or AML because APL is going to respond to all transretinoic acid, as everybody here in the room knows. <laughs> she turned out to have a mutation um, that convinced them that uh, APL, uh, that it was acute promyelocytic leukemia, and uh, they used uh, ATRA effectively in that patient. So if we believe, as I believe, cancer is a genetic disorder, we should be basing our diagnosis on the genes. And then there are other things we can do in the near future, um, RNA-seq. You can sequence all of the RNAs in a cell just as easily as you can sequence all of the, met, all of the, all of the um, nucleotides in the genome. And I believe we're going to be able to use RNA-seq as a supplementary technique to look to see whether messages are ab absent or abnormal. And this could be supportive data for whole genome sequencing. Um, protein sequencing is starting to come into its own. There are some proteomic centers. I don't you guys have a proteomics group? I'm pretty sure. I'm, I know you do, in fact. Um, you can start asking the question whether uh, quantitative mass spec would be useful. There's one, and this is just an example paper. This is, there are millions of papers like this. They um, mapped several thousand proteins from HeLa cells. And this sort of protein data could again be used with uh, whole genome sequencing and RNA-seq to provide additional evidence, the kind of evidence that a mere genome doesn't provide in cases where it's a gene that we haven't seen before, right? You need some other biology, right? We have to be biologists. And then obviously this is what we're all going to run out to do, run out and do right after this seminar, right? Uh, you can have your genome done for about $9,500 by Illumina, or you can get it for $999. I think physicians are going to be able to identify these high-risk variants that we've been talking about a lot today, but that was brought up correctly. We're going to find pre disease predisposition in adults, um, carrier state, drug metabolism genes, 
Ancestry is going to be exposed by this problem. Um, all kinds of interesting, weird little variants are going to be found. There's this connection with novelty seeking, uh, which probably a lot of people in this room have this variant. And then there's this variant, which is associated with elite athletes, which virtually no one in this room <laughs> has. Uh, and so it's your turn once again. I apologize for running over. You might have to put again for some reason. <laughs> one, yeah, one is yes and two is no. <laughs> we do want to have it again. <laughs> okay, so I think we've got, uh, and so now has it gone up or down? Uh, stayed about the same. What, does anyone remember? Stayed about the same. So obviously, there's nothing that I'm doing that couldn't be done without an enormous team of very dedicated people. I take, uh, if there's any problems with anything that you've heard, it's my response, it's my fault. If anything good that you've heard, it's all of their doing. <laughs> uh, but really, they're, they're just a fabulous group of folks um, working with me. And so with that, <laughs> who probably had a monogenic form of sudden cardiac death. So for her, there's several genes for several sort of... There's, very, there's some very good panels. So Fabulous panel. Harvard has a great issue. panels. Is it what? It's a cost issue mm -hmm. to pay for five different sudden cardiac death panels versus one whole exome. One exome. Do you guys handle cases like that? So... Um, at the present time, we're just sort of trying to manage our own internal problems <laughs> in terms of our own positions. But political, political statement. I think you should just get that child to have an exome done. So I asked Pamelion, and they refused to do it. An exome? They refused. They, they're offering clinical whole exome only on a case-by-case -case basis. And they, of course, said, no, you should do uh, CP. No, they, no, no, they no, no. The there, there are, you can send it to right, Baylor. Right, right. You can send it to Gene DX. You can send it to, what's the name of the company on the West Coast who's also doing this? Uh, they did. Uh, all, Ambry. Ambry is doing it. You can send it to UCLA. They've started a program. You have a lot of choices. This was like a year ago, so it was. You, you, and but now you should I ended up doing the five. Yeah, so that's an excellent question. We un so let's say that there's 20,000 genes in humans. Is that a number that people will, will allow me to use without throwing rocks? Perhaps four or 5,000 of them. Have we, I, have we connected a genotype with a phenotype? But what's worse than that is if you look at certain genes uh, like laminin, there's 12 different separate phenotypes with laminin, right, that don't overlap. <laughs> it's crazy. So you don't get sort of one gene, one phenotype, but there's probably, I would say, a quarter of the genes have had a, a, a genotype with a phenotype. So is the turnover time still several months? Yes. Yeah. 
So, so what does it cost to do all of this? Yeah. That's a very good question because on some of these cases, I personally spent 28 hours of my own time just looking at the gene list genes. Okay, so <laughs> my wife's okay about it because I bring the work home at, in the in the weekends, and as long as I'm at the kitchen table and she can see me, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> The cost of sequencing is dropping like a stone. The rate at which sequencing is dropping, that you can generate data, the rate at which that can be done is also increasing very rapidly. The cost of analysis is certainly high at the present time, but the pipeline that we've built and our, we sort of have a new improved pipeline that's about to come out that we're about to start using in the next week, God willing, um, will allow me to do a whole genome in, I'm guessing, about five hours. Did you ever consider releasing raw data to parents, for example, if they had basically reason, you know, Right. So would we ever agree to release the raw data? The problem, I believe, is it would be just, it's the same problem that a chemistry lab would have, or a hematology lab is they put the blood into the Coulter counter, which gives you the hemoglobin, the hematocrit, the white count, the platelet count, to take the raw numbers off the machine, unprocessed, and provide those to the family. No, I, I'm not suggesting that this would be at all good. I, I just I, I think that right. I, I because you don't even even a variant that gets called, you don't know if it's real. So here's what I would, my response to the family would be the following. Uh, spend $999 and just get your exome done by 23andMe. So, so there's a huge um, burden on the healthcare system created by this. So education is going to have to occur in multiple ways. The YouTube videos that I've started doing to try and get the education level of the general public higher. The talks like this where people who didn't know a lot about whole genome sequencing or hadn't considered some of the problems hear about it. Journal articles. Um, uh, symposia at meetings at the most recent American College of uh, Medical Genetics. Myself and some of my colleagues gave a half-day seminar on whole genome sequencing in the clinic. It was me and Dave Dimmick and some and a bunch of other cool people, and we just did uh, we just did this sort of in a much expanded form. So it's going to take a village. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's going to take a lot of people and a lot of time, um, and there is an infinite amount of room to work in this space. And my final political statement is, please, please, you guys have one of the most impressive institutes in the United States. If you guys can't do this right, no one can do this right. And so I would please beg of you to start doing this as soon as humanly possible. You can help patients with this. You can do it in an ethical way. You can do it in a sensitive way to the families and, and your community, but this is ready to roll, and you guys are sort of the perfect, perfect team 
to do this right. So please, please, I beg you to start doing this. All right. Thank you.